Second Samuel, 1, 1 through 18. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two years in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his sword, and behold, the chariots and horsemen were close upon him. And he went, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am a Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. They were mourned. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you are, not, you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood will be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jeshur. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Margaret. Uh, boys and girls who are registered for Story Keepers can head out to Story Keepers now. <coughs> and uh, let's, let's pray together for God's help as we think about today's passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Old Testament and New Testament. As we move back into the Old Testament, we know that uh, it is as relevant in our lives and has mu as much to teach us as perhaps the more familiar sections of the new. And so as we begin this new series, Lord, we come expectantly knowing that as we open up your word, you are committed to speak to us, your people. Wherever each of us is in our journey of faith today, whether here in the sanctuary or watching from home, encourage us through your word, we ask, for we pray it 
In the name of Jesus, our ascended Savior. Amen. So believe it or not, it was Mother's Day 2014 that we wrapped up a series in 1 Samuel. Thought we might get around to 2 Samuel a little sooner than four years later, but we're finally here the Sunday after Mother's Day 2021. And I'm absolutely sure that all of you who were here four years ago remember exactly what was going on when we left off the story at the end of 1 Samuel. So this little review is just for those of you who weren't there at the time. The first king of Israel, King Saul, has died. And to put that in a little bit of context, in 1 Samuel, the storyline that we were watching observed the life of the prophet Samuel, then to the rise and demise of King Saul, a demise that was accompanied by then the rise of David. And it's David who is going to occupy the human stage of 2 Samuel. If we were to compile a list of a short list of great human beings in the world, I think David would have to be on that list. He's one of the most important figures, really, of world history. In cultures that have been touched by his story, David has captured the imagination of great artists and sculptors and writers, from children's storybooks all the way to Michelangelo's famous sculpture, David is remembered and recognized by people of many backgrounds, sacred and secular alike, over the 3,000 years since he lived. And a large part of the reason for that is because of, of this extraordinary account of his life and kingly reign that is portrayed here in the books of Samuel. As many have pointed out over the years, David's story here is, is simply captivating uh, with both the greatness and the weaknesses of his life portrayed in vivid detail in what is one of the world's finest uh, accounts and pieces of narrative literature. However, as I hope we're going to see in this sermon series, we miss the significance of David almost entirely if we don't take careful note of the fact that David's story is a story within a story. It's a story that belongs to the whole Bible story. David may be a major figure in human history, but he's an even more significant figure in the history of God's redemptive purposes for the entire world. That at the risk of oversimplification, we can say that everything in the Old Testament before David, from Genesis all the way to 1 Samuel, is leading up to his reign, and everything after David, from 1 Kings all the way through to Malachi, looks back to David's kingdom and confirms the expectation that this was the beginning of something monu of monumental importance for the world. And yet as we read 2 Samuel together over the coming weeks and months, we need to keep reminding ourselves that this book is actually ultimately not about David. The hero of 2 Samuel is a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people, a covenant people which includes us. In other words, this is actually also our story. That's why it's of relevance for us to be looking at in the coming weeks. But in today's part of the story, we come to this big transitional moment in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel as the leadership of God's people shifts from one person to another. So that in our passage today, the new leader, David, 
gets word of the death of the old leader Saul, the old leader who had for 15 years been pursuing the one who will become the new leader in order to try to get rid of him. So here's what I hope we're going to see from our passage today. It is this, that Christian grief when others die reflects a love even of our enemies. Christian grief when others die reflects a love even of our enemies. And we're going to look at that through the three stages of this chapter. First of all, David's shock. Secondly, David's lament. And thirdly, David's grace. First then, David's shock, uh, beginning verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So the narrator places us right in the thick of things here at the beginning as he, as he mentions three events that will turn out to have very great consequences for the entire world. First of all, the death of Saul. Secondly, the victory of David. And thirdly, two days that changed everything. Think with me for a moment about the significance of these three events. First of all, the death of Saul. Here's a one-minute summary of the story of the Bible up to this point, that despite our human rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden, God promised still to bring blessing to the world through a nation descended from Abraham, a nation in which God's rule would be honored. God brings this nation out from slavery to another king, namely Pharaoh, rescuing the nation out from Egypt and into the land he had promised Abraham. However, the nation repeatedly turns against God. And in 1 Samuel, we see that come to a culmination where they demand that rather than having God as their king, instead they want a human king so that they can be like all the pagan nations around them. And somewhat surprisingly, God grants them their wish. He gives them a human king. At the same time, however, as refusing to forsake these people as that he's claimed as his own. They could have a king as long as both the king and the people followed the Lord. Well, the first king in this arrangement is King Saul. Saul fails to fulfill the conditions of following the Lord, and so the Lord rejects him as king. The reference here in verse 1 to the death of Saul is referring then to the events that come at the very end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, in which Saul and his army fight against the Philistines 50 miles north of Jerusalem at Mount Gilboa and where they're defeated. Saul's sons, including Jonathan, are killed, but Saul, rather than face the shame of being tortured and killed by the Philistines himself, falls on his own sword and kills himself, so the king is dead. It's event number one. Meanwhile, event number two, at the same time as Saul is battling and losing to the Philistines, a hundred miles south of that battle, David is fighting against the Amalekites and defeating the Amalekites. And we read about that battle and that victory in 1 Samuel chapter 30. When God had rejected Saul as the king, he had promised that he would provide a different king, a king of his own choosing, a king who would be a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13 verse 14. And that king would be David. And while the current king of Israel was being defeated by the Philistines, the king-to-be was winning his battle against Israel's arch enemies, the Amalekites. But here's where the story gets interesting. Verse 1 again, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. 
Here are the two days that change everything. Because these two days are days of total suspense for David. He knew that far to the north the Philistine forces had gathered to fight against Saul and Israel, but he doesn't yet know the outcome. These were two days that, as the readers, we already know the old king is dead. But the one we're expecting to be the new king doesn't yet know that piece of information. David has not yet heard the news of Saul's death. And so during these two days, he's waiting in Ziglag. He's undoubtedly anxious to know how the battle to the north has gone. And it's at that point that the narrator invites us to join David and Ziglag to see what happens on the third day. Verses 2 to 4. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Now, the scene immediately creates this puzzle for David as much as for us as the reader, which is namely, who, who is this guy? We're, we're invited by the narrator to, to kind of look with David at this man ap- approaching, totally disheveled, torn clothes, dirty head. It turns out it's a young man who, ha- who is desperate to bring news to David. What his motive for bringing that news is remains still to be seen. But beginning in verse 3, David starts to ask the man a series of questions. He's going to ask him five in total. First question, where do you come from? He says, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. Second question, well, how, how did it go? And the man then shares one piece of information at a time, moving towards what will be the climactic news for David. First, he reports the route the people fled. Second, he tells of the, the large death toll. Many are dead. Third, he gives the most significant news of all. Even Saul is dead. And then fourth, almost as if he knew something of David's particular concerns, he adds, and Jonathan, Saul's son, is also dead. David then asks his third question, seeking the fuller story. How do you know Saul and Jonathan are dead? And it's at this point that the young man goes into his own account of how he just happened to be on Mount Gilboa, where he came upon Saul leaning on his spear, surrounded by chariots and horsemen nearby. Saul called the young man over, asked him who he was. And it's at this point in the narrative we discover something rather significant about the young man, which the narrator has withheld in order to kind of thicken the plot for us here. He's an Amalekite, a member of the arch-sworn enemies of Israel. And this young Amalekite continues his story that Saul had ordered him to kill this king, to spare the king further anguish, which is what the young man did. And now he has come to David, who he calls my Lord, with the crown that had been on Saul's head and the armlet on his arm. That actually brings us to the central two verses of the entire story. It's actually a breathtaking moment in the narrative because I think if we'd been writing this story, we probably would have continued after verse 10 with the details of verses 13 to 16 with David's final two questions and the response of the young man to those questions and the order of David for the young man to be killed. But for our writer, the Amalekite's fate can wait for a moment because he thinks the most important item in this story 
is the grief and the wailing of David and his men over Israel and her fallen leaders and her troops. Look at verses 11 to 12. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. You see, this was more than just a few deaths. This was a national catastrophe. This was ancient Israel's 9-11. This on the scale of battles in Israel was the worst. Mount Gilboa was strewn with the bodies of fallen Israelites, including the king and his sons among them. So that from the elation of victory over the Amalekites, David is plunged into abject grief and shock at the news of this national catastrophe. John Calvin wrote a series of sermons on 2 Samuel. They're still in print. And in his sermon on this passage, Calvin asks the reader this question, do you see how quickly things in your life can just change? We can be in a state of elation one minute for Samuel 30, and then absolute dejection the next, 2 Samuel 1. Life can seem to be swimming along just fine, and then with no warning whatsoever, something unforeseen intrudes into our life, and everything, everything changes. That just like that, we go from optimism to pessimism, from laughter to to tears, and it literally can happen in a split second, can't it? Whether it's a phone call, or an accident, or an unforeseen diagnosis. And Calvin asked the question, that all of us ask at such moments, why? Why do these things happen in our lives? And the reformer's answer to that question is not dissimilar to that which we saw a few weeks ago when we were looking at Hebrews 12. It is that God doesn't want our hearts to get so tied up with the pleasures of this earth so that as a loving heavenly father, he's constantly training us as his sons and his daughters to find our security not in this world, but in him. And one way he does that is by demonstrating himself over and over and over again to be our changeless, faithful, loving God in the context of all the changes, all the shifts, all the reversals that we face in life. As I mentioned in the sermon on Hebrews 12, anytime you and I are confronted by suffering or grief or hardship in our lives, a significant amount of our misery comes from the anger or surprise that these things have happened to us. And yet what happened to David here in a way happens in some way to all of us, that things in our life just change so quickly without any warning so that we should always have our hearts ready for such shifts. So what's the appropriate response of God's people when we experience shock in our lives as David does here. Well, David shows us the appropriate response by responding to the shock of the news of, about Jonathan and Saul and their army by responding with lament. David expresses his grief in lament. I didn't ask Margaret to, lead, to read the second half of this chapter. We're going to read it now. This is David's lament that comes from verses 17 and following. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, 
Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. It's a stunning poem. As David laments the death of Jonathan and Saul, you have a threefold repetition of how the mighty have fallen. You have the, the pathos of each stanza addressed to those who actually are not present, to Israel, to the daughters of Israel, to the mountains of Gilboa, to, to Saul, to Jonathan. It's a quick word about David's closing words of affection for Jonathan here. When David speaks of Jonathan's love for him being extraordinary, Surpassing the love of women, it was not indicative of some kind of homosexual relationship between these two men, as some modern writers wish to suggest. Read the rest of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You'll understand that it would have been impossible for a relationship between practicing homosexuals to exist among God's people without some form of comment, some form of censure, some form of condemnation. So that if that's not what's going on here, well, what was? Well, David's not talking about sex here. He's talking about loyalty. If you talk to soldiers who have been in battle, they'll speak about their fellow soldiers who have been in the trenches with them, who had their backs, who've saved their lives, and they'll speak of those fellow soldiers in terms in which they would not even speak of when they talk about their wives because it's a different kind of relationship. They love their wives, but they have this fraternity, this band of brothers bond, which is exactly what David had with Jonathan. Absolute loyalty, sacrifice, selflessness. Read through 1 Samuel, you find Jonathan had defended David at the risk of his own life. Our culture's problem is that we've sexualized every relationship, so we barely know what friendship between the same sexes looks like anymore. Well, it looks like this between David and Jonathan. So David hasn't yet been crowned king, and yet in a sense his first act here as king-elect towards his people is to teach them a psalm of lament that he wants them to be able to sing and say too that will not only enable them to express their mourning, but to give it a structure. And that's the beauty of lament. Andrew Bonner was a 19th century pastor in Scotland who kept a diary, and in the entry for October 14th to the 15th, 1864, he notes the death of Isabella, his wife of 17 years. What will not surprise most of us is that every year after that, on the anniversary of Isabella's death, 
Bonner refer, refers to that loss in his diary. And that doesn't surprise any of us because all of us have lost loved ones and we know that when we've lost loved ones, gr that grief does not have a sell-by date. Sorrow is not merely a one-time sad event, it's a continuing process. And because grief abides, we need some way to process the expression of that grief, and that's where lament greatly helps us. In his commentary on 2 Samuel, Dale Ralph Davis makes the observation that lament differs from informal, spontaneous, immediate outbursts of grief. That is, lament is a more formal expression of grief that provides a vehicle of the mind as well as for the emotions, an expression that can be written and read and learned and practiced and repeated. That in a lament, the intensity of one's emotions unites with the discipline of one's mind to produce structured sorrow, a sort of authorized version of grief, he says. And as such, a lament is no less sincere or sorrowful. It's not cold or detached. It's simply an organized expression of thoughtful grief. Davis suggests in his commentary that in response to the shocks of our lives, we would do well at times to put pen to paper, to write out a lament as an expression of our grief. Maybe that's something some of us might want to do. But even if you don't do that, we should, of course, remember that we, we have this tremendous resource from King David himself of laments in the Psalms. Psalms are full of laments, furnishing us with language for the seemingly unspeakable, giving us coherent uh, shape to our incoherent feelings, edited language to our unedited emotions. If you're continuing to use the Daily Prayer Project, and I hope you are, if, uh, if you've kind of slacked off out of lack of discipline or laziness, let's get back back on it this week because it's a great resource. And one of the things I, I really appreciate it about it is that it, it's given me this renewed daily habit of reading a psalm every day. In fact, it's the same psalm morning and evening, just to drill down deeper into that one psalm each day. And part of the benefit of that is it gives us language of lament. The psalms aren't all laments because not all of life is lament, but many of them are. And in those moments and times of shock and grief and suffering, they give us words to express what we struggle to know how to express. So we've looked at David's shock. We've seen David's lament. Lastly, I want us to think about David's grace. If you know anything about David's experience with Saul as recorded in 1 Samuel, you'll be forgiven for looking at this chapter and thinking to yourself, Really? David, you're lamenting Saul's death? I mean, in 1 Samuel, Saul hated David. He chased David. He defrauded David. David ends up on the run for 15 years because of Saul's jealousy and hatred of him. So that given that, you, you would think that news of Saul's death would be a moment of celebration for David. I mean, think about how you might feel or at least be tempted to feel if your rival at work or someone in your company who has sought to undermine you is fired, if you didn't actually do a little celebratory jig beside your desk, you'd at least be at least dancing on the inside, right? But not David. David, 
the news of Saul's death, mourns and weeps. And so the question is, how do we explain his reaction here? And I think it's two things. First of all, it's God's anointing of Saul. Look at what David says to this Amalekite in verse 14. He says, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? For David, there was something going on that was much more significant at that moment than Saul's hatred of David. And it was God's anointing of Saul. The Lord's anointed is Bible language for the one who was chosen and appointed by God to represent him as his king. And as such, it was only God and God alone who could appoint and remove a king. That's why in 1 Samuel, on those occasions that David had the opportunity to kill Saul, in contrast to this Amalekite, he refuses to do so because he understands that to oppose the Lord's anointed is to oppose God. David therefore understood that what God had done for Saul far outweighed what Saul had done to David. But there's still more going on here than just David's obedience to the command to touch not the Lord's anointed. I wonder if you notice how David speaks of Saul in the lament that we read earlier. Verses 22 to 24, David reflects positively on Saul's victories in battle, on his provision of economic security for the people of Israel. That is, David wants to acknowledge and point to all the good that Saul achieved. Again, David could have been very tempted in this in this poem to make it all about himself, to push Saul to the side. You know, it would have been a bit like at, the wedding, at a wedding reception where the attention is all meant to be on the bride and groom and the best man gets up to give his speech and he begins by saying, oh, by the way, everybody, it's my birthday today. Do you want to wish me a happy birthday? And he makes it all about himself. And everyone's going, this is awkward. That's not what, D David doesn't want to point to himself. He wants to point still to the anointed one, to Saul. So he highlights the strengths of the one who regarded him as his enemy. David loved his enemy even after death. He chose to focus on God's grace in Saul's life, not on Saul's hate in David's life. He understood that if he had allowed David's hate to determine his life, he, he would have been destroyed. He may, might not have been killed, but he certainly would have been crushed by his own vengeance, and that would have destroyed him. Saul's hate, rather than narrowing David and reducing him, actually provides the conditions by which David becomes expansive and generous and gracious. And of course, all of this is in complete contrast in this chapter to the Amalekite messenger. What I didn't point out earlier when we were looking at his report to David is that while there were some elements of truth in his report, David or Saul and Jonathan and so forth had died, much of what he says involved great embellishment. How do we know that the Amalekite was lying? Well, one reason is that the Amalekite report here contradicts what the narrator has already told us in 1 Samuel chapter 31. But the other reason we know he's lying is because he's an Amalekite. How do you know an Amalekite is lying? His lips are moving. That's, that's the Bible's perspective on Amalekites. They're, they're always portrayed negatively and with good reason in the Old Testament. For example, in the, in, the, in the story of the Exodus, God brings Israel out of Egypt. Who are their first enemies they have to confront? 
It's the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the ancient equivalent of ISIS, targeting non-combatants and um, defenseless women and children and the elderly. And so here's this Amalekite who, who we might say clearly at this point is living by the ethics of advantage. That is, while, while David wouldn't dream of hijacking Saul's death for his own end, the Amalekites' only thought is, how can I benefit from this? So he tells this self-aggrandizing lie that it was actually him that put Saul to death at Saul's request because he thinks David will reward him for such a deed. That's the ethics of advantage played by someone with an Amalekite heart. Only someone with an Amalekite heart would have imagined that David would have been happy to hear that Saul was dead that he would have wanted to dance on Saul's grave at such news, that he would reward the killer upon hearing his role in Saul's death. But instead, the Amalekite receives justice, but it's actually a justice mixed with irony, isn't it? He's punished for what he said, even though we know as the readers that he didn't actually do it. He received what he should have received, even though it wasn't based on what happened. But still the judgment of God found him, found him in his lie, and repaid him in line with his intent, if not his actions. It's a reminder that crime in the end never pays. God will always expose us for who we are. So the lesson really here is don't live by the ethics of advantage with an Amalekite heart, but live with the grace of David such that you love your enemies. Christian grief when others die reflects a love even even of our enemies. But as we finish, however, let me point out how yet again here in the Old Testament, we're pointed forward as New Testament believers to the added power and motivation that we have to live not as self-serving Amalekites, but as gracious Davids. Look again at verses one to two in this chapter. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp. So we saw earlier, here were two days during which for David, the future was completely uncertain. Where there was fear, there was wondering what was coming next. On the third day, behold, a man came. For David, the news was devastatingly bad. But surely here was a foreshadowing of another on the third day, the setting of a pattern that would be replicated centuries later. Because after the death of Jesus, there were again a two-day period when the future was unknown, was uncertain, where there was, fear, where there was fear and anxiety waiting for the unknown. But on the third day on that occasion, a man didn't just come, a man rose. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death. And having risen from the dead, he ascended back to the Father, as we celebrate today on this Ascension Sunday, to sit in power and authority at the right hand of the Father. And then, as we'll celebrate next week on Pentecost Sunday, he pours out his Spirit upon us. And it's that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, that gives us the resources we need to deal with the shocks of life. To bring our sorrows into the presence of God as we lament. And to live grace-filled, enemy-loving lives like David. 
A third day brought devastation for David. A greater third day has brought deliverance and delight for us, such that we are indeed equipped to live grace-filled lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in this story of David, we are pointed back again and again to you, a covenantly, covenant faithful God who has done everything necessary to preserve and equip your people to live as your people. We pray, Lord, that as we learn from David, we would also give thanks to you that you have given us your spirit so that we can live like this. These are supernatural ways to live to live such grace-filled lives, to be able to love our enemies in life and even in their deaths. And so equip us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.